0: You are listening to The Public Sphere, a podcast created by early career researchers at the Trinity Longroom Hub. Our ethos is to interject the discussions we have in academia into the public sphere, asking what arts and humanities research can contribute to broader public knowledge. For season two, we discuss one general theme, connection. Hello, my name is Eleanor Neal and I'm a third year PhD in the classics department. My research looks at community engagement with archaeology on Cyprus. In this episode of The Public Sphere, I will be talking to Dr. Craig Sapola about the role of post humanism in indigenous archaeology and museums. Craig is the director of the Mohegan Archaeology Field School in Connecticut, where I met him as a student in 2015. I hope you enjoy our conversation about archaeology and reimagining our connection to the past. So if we could start off by just having a short introduction to what your position is and what you do
1: sure i have two jobs actually i work at two institutions the royal ontario museum which is a provincial museum in canada has a very large archaeological collection specifically north america and specifically ontario so i'm a a curator of north american archaeology i I hold an endowed chair in archaeology there called the vetoretto chair of north american archaeology and then my other job is at the University of Toronto I'm in the Anthropology Department as an associate professor.
0: And you use the term Indigenous Archaeology. What does that mean? Yeah, that's
1: a great question. I think it kind of uh, eludes easy definition. Type of work that I do it is collaborative Indigenous Archaeology. Now that term is not a universal term. So there's pla- there's other places in the world, like Australia, for instance, where the word where the phrase Indigenous Archaeology means something. Different. It means just basically doing pre colonial archaeology in general. I'm using it in a much more specific way, which is much more of a sort of a North American way. I think part of it is based on the publication of a book called Indigenous Archaeology in 1999 by Joe Watkins, who's a Choctaw archaeologist. He just stepped down as a president of the Society for American Archaeology. But in any case, it is archaeology with, by, and for Indigenous people. Now, that definition with, by, and for comes from George Nicholas. He's, a, he's another person who does work like I do. And they sort of established that definition about 20 years ago. It was like 1997. And it just, as you can see, with, by, and for is like incredibly broad. So you can go in all kinds of directions. So that ranges from tribal archaeology programs that are actually completely closed off from the rest of the archaeological world, where uh, it's archaeology done by a tribe, for a tribe, curated by a tribe with their own methods, theories, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one version. Then there's more collaborative versions that involve outsiders such as myself. I'm a a settler colonist from the 19th century, I should say. And the rest of me is a settler colonist from about the 17th century. I'm from America. I live in Canada now. But in any case, involving outsiders such as myself doing the work. And that's the kind of work that I've been involved in because, of course, by definition, any work that I'm doing is going to be collaborative because for the most part, I'm working with someone else's heritage. So there's a lot of definitions, but the phrase indigenous archaeology means basically changing archaeology to fit the communities who connect to that archaeology other than the archaeologists in a less traditional sense. And we've done archaeology for the for the history of the discipline.
0: Do you see it then more as a process than as a sort of distinct sub-discipline?
1: It's a tricky one. I think the process is is very much Valuable, but I think that's kind of true for for all archaeology because I think any archaeology where you come to do the archaeology with an idea about how the world works that's very rigid, I think you're probably missing out on the strength of what the discipline is. The strength of the discipline is to be able to grab you and shake you, metaphorically speaking, I guess, (laughs) to make you rethink about the the things that you take for granted. I think that's what the strength of any archaeology is. And so if you come to archaeology with a rigid understanding of the world and how it works, and I already know what happened in the past, but I just want some artifacts to show me that that's right. I think you're kind of missing out on the strength of what we do. So that's a process, part of the process that's very valuable for all archaeology. I think collaborative uh, indigenous archaeology, the process is equally as important because it's not just about confronting the past in new ways and to think about the present and the future in new ways. It's about confronting other types of people and being open to changing how you think about the world, but also recognizing the fallibility of the history of archaeological thought and how there are things that, yes, this is what I think, but the argument is not that this is reality, right? Uh, And I think that's the history of archaeological thought is that Western males, such as myself, what we said was correlated almost one-to-one with ontology or reality, Uh, ontology in a philosophical sense. So epistemology of Western peoples was always correlated with ontology of of how the world is. But in fact, we're recognizing more and more, especially in 2021, I think. But but of course, this is not the first year we've done this, is that there's multiple different perspectives and none of those perspectives are actually correlated any more or less with reality. So I think doing archaeology that's practiced with different peoples, with different sensibilities, with different types of expertise, with different types of interest we create a much more dynamic process. It's not just even digging, it's to get to the field even. There's a dynamic process where things are negotiated a little bit more.
0: So just because you uh, brought up ontology and epistemology, I think here's a good part to talk about your work on post-humanism. And if you could, again, just start off with a definition for someone who doesn't know what that means especially as post-humanism means different things in different academic fields, but also in different contexts beyond academia.
1: Yeah, you're right. I think post-humanism is incredibly diverse. I think within archaeology and anthropology specifically, post-humanism, sometimes people say post-anthropocentrism is misunderstood. Some people think it means you don't study humans or you try to make them equal to like a glass of water. That's not what post Anthropocentrism is. It means that you approach the world with an open mind, with a flat ontology, and then you observe the differences between a human and a glass of water, rather than assuming that they're fundamentally opposite from one another, because they aren't in many scenarios. I think many people gloss posthumanism in archaeology as, as what I would call a humanism or anti-humanism. Now there is a field of thought called a humanism. You can actually read Patricia McCormick, uh, she has a book from the last couple of years called the A Human Manifesto. And I actually heard her give a talk recently where she basically advocated for the end of human existence. So that's related to post-humanism, but it does not represent all of post-humanism at all when I tell my students about post-humanism, I start with three basic sort of tenets that I find valuable. And I take these ideas from philosophers and other writers. So like Rosie Braidotti, really prolific with the literature on post-humanism, Francesca Ferrando, also a philosopher, and then people like, like Rachel Krellin, who's an archeologist, or Colleen Morgan, another really interesting archaeologist. All of these people are writing about post-humanism in interesting ways. But I'm talking about Ferrando's work in particular, uh, when I try to define this very hard to define concept. There's three things that she defines. The first thing is, of course, post-humanism is post-anthropocentric. So it, it does not start with humans at the center of the world. It does not assume that humans are fundamentally different from everything else around us. So that's what post-anthropocentrism is. That's the first one. The second one is to be post-dualistic. So don't just assume that there's a, a hard divide between nature and culture or, or men and women or things and, and living things and non-living things. So it's, it's to be post-dualistic, which of course, all kinds of archaeological theory was doing that before we became post-human. And then the third one, which most people forget about the critics usually forget about this one, is to de-center the white male as the only version of humanity. And that's really important. When you see that third point about post-humanism, you realize that it actually has a lot to do with the history of feminism or the history of indigenous critique. Many of these post-human philosophers, I think all of the ones that I've talked about, they're all feminists as well. And of course, feminist theory is concerned with ethics, is concerned with politics, right? So many people would say, no, no, posthumanism is apolitical or, or unethical, but uh, I would disagree with that reading. I think you actually have to dwell with the literature and, and, and read it to actually, I mean, I, I don't think that's a radical idea. You have to actually read the stuff to understand it. So again, just to summarize, three points, post-anthropocentric, meaning you decenter humans. You don't assume that they're fundamentally different from everything else that they share relationships with. Post-dualistic, you get away from Cartesian divides that define enlightenment thought and before, and decentering types of human experience that are treated as defaults that stand in universally for all other types of human experience. So, what about disabled people? What about differently gendered people, different sexualities, all kinds of difference? <laughs> so, that's what post humanism is in yeah. my mind.
0: This is really interesting <laughs> to me. So, the theme of this season is about connection. And this is another way of examining our connection between ourselves and the rest of the world. And so I think it's a really unique perspective to take on things that have been really entrenched in tradition, i.e. archaeology, right? There have been a lot of time and effort spent on defining what is archaeology and what is archaeological knowledge. And this can be, like you said, rigid. Um, And so by expanding how we understand, how we interact with things, other people, living things, the universe, we can change how we interact with that archaeological knowledge as well. I was hoping you could give me sort of a concrete example of how you use this in your research, in your work in the field, or something along those lines.
1: Yeah, well, so what we described at the beginning when you were asking me about collaborative Indigenous archaeology, that meshes really well with the third point I made about post-humanism. Because, of course, if we realize that it's not people like me that define the world or stand in for all human experience, we need to bring other bodies into the room to create a new version of archaeology. So that that obviously makes sense. I think the same goes for the second point, right? Post-dualist. Well, at Mohegan, we don't, when we dig our test pits, we don't call them sterile when there's no artifacts in them. That's because we don't see nature and culture as com- clearly divided as the Enlightenment told us, right? So there's there's all kinds of things in the world where th- there's natural elements that have, uh, nature and culture are, are, are basically entangled together, especially in many indigenous worldviews in North America. So that's another sort of example of how those things come together. And then I think, well, I think colonialism in, in North America is a perfect example of where you get the anthropocentrism of Europeans with the hubris to come in and say, by the way, this is all nature. This hasn't been modified at all in a significant way. And therefore, I have the right to drive my roots into it and make myself indigenous. So that's, that's a very anthropocentric, Western-centric perspective. And then you have indigenous people that were here that didn't necessarily see the world that way, that didn't see that they, they needed to make stone boundary walls or practice agriculture that has this really heavy material signature to, to make it my place, right? To, to own that nature. Again, you see those different things coming together. So I think when you have those three principles coming into doing archaeology, I think they mesh well with a collaborative indigenous perspective. I mean, like, for instance, like one of the things I've looked at is how do we define artifacts within an indigenous worldview? If nature and culture aren't separate anymore, then what about, and if, by the way, if the earth is a being, that is alive, mother earth or grandfather or grandmother, then what about like boulders that are pushed up from the freezing and thawing cycles in New England? As those boulders get pushed up, we can't tell that they're modified. How do we treat those? Are they nature or are they culture, right? So so I've written a little bit about dealing with those fieldstone piles and things like that, in that sense. I think in a museum setting, I think it's really interesting because I work in a museum that is half natural history and half art and culture. And good God, like keep those two apart, whatever you do, right? Our departments are physically separated by floors and floors. The exhibitions that we propose for the most part, it's like there's this square that's art and culture and there's this square that's natural history. And I think the most interesting exhibits that we put together actually... Bind the two together. So, for instance, right now, I'm having the great privilege to work with this renowned Cree artist named Kent Monkman, and he's a painter, but he's also doing a bunch of installations. He's using his art to basically get people to reflect upon the loss of knowledge associated with settler colonialism in Canada, but also uh, the specific impact of something that's very timely the residential school system in Canada. And so, he's actually doing things like using paleontology and, and sort of matching that up with figures like the Thunderbird figure in in Cree ontology. And he's actually making those things relate to one another rather than have them, you know, opposed. And he's doing wonderful things like he's taking the, the illustration style used in things that you see like Audubon bird illustrations. And he's using that and he's illustrating figures that are Cree figures like little people or thunderbirds and things. So again, combining nature and culture and breaking that divide in really interesting ways. So, so I kind of gave you some examples from the field and one example at least from uh, from the museum.
0: It's so interesting that the museum, uh, as an institution, is not integrating those ideas of natural history and um, and and I guess do they see natural history as science and that yeah leaning into that divide between this is science, this is cultural or humanities kind of idea.
1: I want to make sure that you know that there's many people other than me that are very interested in mixing these things together. But I think that no matter how favorably you think about the recent past of your discipline and how great it is that we've changed our mind a lot, we typically revert to the same old defaults that they were reverting to in the early 19th century even. So, so again, I think it's those traditions that sometimes limit how we have those discussions. Yes, to answer your question, when they say, oh, it's the scientists, that's a gloss for the people that work in natural history. I'm not included there. I mean, I'm, my feelings aren't that hurt. But, but again, like there are a group that are called scientists, and they're often just the biologists that work with us, or the geologists. So I think there's like those traditions, those defaults that silently do their work and cleave us off from each other. The Royal Ontario Museum did a wonderful exhibit on blood suckers. So animals that suck blood, insects that suck blood. But they did a wonderful part of that that had to do with the culture history of mythical figures like vampires or other uh, figures. So there's like both culture and nature there. But I think there's a lot more we could do with that. Like, for instance, one of the things I keep pushing is like, I want to do an exhibit on the fur trade in Canada, but I want to do a whole thing about rivers first. That foregrounds that. And as ecosystems, as fields of energy, that's very metaphysical. I know. I'm sorry. I'm definitely not a scientist now. But uh, you know what I mean? Uh, mixes a bunch of different things together because I think that's what you're supposed to do at a museum. You can't depend upon that museum goer that reads the exhibit text from start to end. In fact, true confession, I'm a museum curator. I don't read museum text. It's mostly because I have children and they, they like make <laughs> me go, but I'm always waiting at the end for whoever I go with because I, I got through it already. I absorb and I pick and choose. It's not like when I read a book. So again, we have to keep it this multimedia experience that's interesting for everyone, which is incredibly challenging. But luckily we have a wonderful team of uh, project planners and everyone else who, who helps us think through those challenges.
0: It's really interesting that you brought up um, the text panels because, uh, so I was in New York recently, for the first time in a long time, and I went to the Natural History Museum out of curiosity, because I loved it as a child, and I had thoughts. (laughs) I had a lot to think about. And of course, the Natural History Museum in New York is also the, like, headquarters of their repatriation efforts for the Smithsonian, so that's a whole thing that they're trying to present as part of the story without actually... They haven't yet gotten to actually dealing with the displays and the some of the other sort of colonial impositions yeah. that they've.
1: Yeah, so. yeah. And, and we're we're experimenting with all kinds of things on this this show that we're working with Kent Monkman, including multiple text panels, including text panels written from the perspective of differently aged people, including young people. So. I'm also a parent, so I'm always thinking about how my my children understand these issues. So I find that really valuable, both as a parent and as a curator, and even as an academic, even though like my kids obviously would never try to read anything I've written.
0: (laughs) Okay, so one of the things that obviously is very hot topic at the moment is repatriation in general. Um, And one of the things that I find quite interesting is this question. Questions around ownership are always interesting because how how do you prove that you did or did not own something is always difficult but one of these arguments of like oh well if we start giving things back then we're gonna have an empty museum and I think most people who think about it for more than about 30 seconds can gather that that's unlikely to happen but I am curious how you see museums um, maintaining this sort of space of of education, wanting to be places where people learn about things that they they don't necessarily learn about in other settings, while also being um, open to returning some of the things that they uh, acquired in less than ethical ways.
1: Yeah. So I'm, I'm not first person to say this. Note that I think museums are, for the last 20 years, 30 years, have been moving away from the, the collections and certainly away from the idea of holding huge collections forever and taking them out of time so that, that, that the future humans can appreciate them. That's another, you know, that's human hubris for you. Uh, we know what's good for every other thing in the world. It's to stop its time with our own human methods, which don't work that well. Not to say that they don't serve a purpose, but the point is, I think, museums are moving away from the stuff as their center and they they're moving to just relations places where people interact with each other build new relations now it could be relations to other people it could be relations to collections that aren't housed forever in a museum i'm i'm the only curator at the rom that doesn't actively collect right now because actually we just hired someone who doesn't have a collection at all person is a curator of climate change so that's another example of what museums are becoming because a person's role is not defined by any collection so same thing with me i think i've i've added probably about 10 things since I've been at the ROM. And that's usually because like it's a collection that was dug in the 19th century. Oh, by the way, here's 10 other objects that were part of that collection and that they come added to the collection at the ROM. But the point is those collections will go away slowly. Some of them will never go away. They'll stay. I don't think museums will ever be empty. NAGPRA proves that, right? It's been a few decades now. They told us in the mid-90s or whatever it was, you know, the mid-90s, all the museums are going to be empty. All the archaeologists were going to be sad. Many of us are still sad that. for a variety of reasons but the the museums are still operating they still have collections but what NAGPRA has created of course is a lot of repatriation I do all the repatriation at the ROM too but we don't have federal legislation but anyway it's created a lot of opportunities for repatriation it's also created a lot of relationships between different types of humans that hadn't been in relation or good relation before and created new ways of doing archaeology and museum research so I think that's a good thing so yeah I think that the museum itself is not this vault where you just have like endless amounts of things alphabetized by some antiquated typology, it's become a place where we come in together to experience different things that we can't do on our own. That might be going, looking at a whale skeleton. It might be going, hearing an indigenous song that's been recorded or talking to an indigenous educator or looking at an archaeological artifact. I don't know. It could be all of those things, but it doesn't mean that museums have to keep doing the same old thing they've been doing for you know the last hundred 200 years.
0: Yeah, I like that idea of looking to the future in, in terms of relationships as opposed to, like you said, taking things out of time. That's a really nice way of describing how museums saw themselves. I have read arguments that museums and archaeology as well, kind of separate, are inherently colonialist and I would lean towards taking mud on a case-by-case basis. Um, uh, But I was wondering what your thoughts on that are. Do you think that it's a constant sort of struggle against that for for you, someone who's not interested in perpetuating these sorts of colonialism in all of its 21st century glory, or do you think that museums can be places that are not struggling against themselves in that way?
1: Not all museums, not all things that resemble archaeology, uh, have to be colonial. So, like we we know that indigenous people did their own things, learning from what they found in the ground before archaeology was invented. So that's one thing. So that's not colonialist at all. It's just. <laughs> remembering in a way that we don't think of today as remembering. There's many indigenous run museums, right? Never assume that those are colonial. But I do think like most sort of Western forms of archaeology or Western forms of museums, they do have to constantly monitor that relationship with colonialism because it's usually there in the way that we learned how to do what we do. There was elements of it present and therefore it's part of those defaults right and so we have to always try to be vigilant about that i think that it's the same thing as like the language of decolonization is like as soon as we start saying like oh it's here we've done it we've decolonized that's when Actually, you're at your worst because that's when you've, by the way, who am I to say that anyway? I'm, I have no one to say that. I have no right to say that. But anyway, I, I think if you decide that you've already done this monumental thing, then that's when the real danger comes up, right? And and I think it's the same thing as you mentioned the question of who owns the past. Well, to me, it's never been about trying to come up with an answer because there is no answer. The point is that you're having the conversation. Yeah. And and actually, for me, I'm committed to now, I don't know what years. is 2021, 20 or 30 years of having that conversation and you have to be able to dwell in the discomfort or not knowing because if you ever decide I figured it out I know how to do this that's usually when you're at your worst so yeah I think you have to constantly think about this I mean for instance I write about collaboration I write collaboratively but there's all kinds of elements of that work that could be looked at in a colonial fashion since finishing my my PhD my entire career how I'm paid is through talking about someone else's history that alone is colonial relationship and And that's who I am. You can't erase colonialism. You can't erase colonists, I don't think. What I'm trying to do in that role is I recognize the negative, but I also try to make space for change, right? I try to train that next generation of students. You went to the Mohegan Field School, which is one of the field schools I I teach at, and and you're off doing some other type of, completely different type of archaeology. And that's what we want. That's what we want to do is to get people thinking about these issues early and then bring them somewhere else and think about them there. And maybe they come to disagree with us. That's okay. It's just, it's, it's putting these issues out in the body of practitioners and recognizing you have to situate your knowledge, right? I've been doing archeology span for a long time. I have, I'm an endowed chair. I'm an associate, whatever. I have tenure. It doesn't matter. My knowledge is always fallible. I'm operating it from where I am, who I am. And so I think it's one of the most important things you can do to combat colonial sensibilities and defaults is to basically just situate who you are and be very, very honest. I'm the director of the Mohegan Archaeological Field School. I've been doing it since 2010. And it's a really unique situation where I didn't ask to come and work. They called me and, and then we had some really honest conversations about our different goals. Now, you know, one of the really interesting people you can read, probably the most interesting person I should have mentioned when I talked about posthumanism, is Kim TallBear. Kim TallBear is an indigenous anthropologist. One of her advisors is Donna Haraway, who's a really important feminist post-humanist thinker. But she's also like trained by Vine Deloria and, and her family and things. And she talks about collaboration in really interesting ways. And she really wants to get away from the type of archeology span I do, which is like an exchange, right? We talk about, you know, we sit down and we say like, what do the Mohegan people want to get out of doing this archaeology? And Craig, what do you want to get out of it? We, We still do that. I'm being very clear here. And oftentimes those things very much align, but she's basically talking about forms of collaboration where there isn't like that give and take necessarily. I think she's mostly concerned with looking at it as like a, you know, you buy something at the store, like that type of interaction where it's like, you give me something I give you something and then I walk away. Whereas I think we still have to have those conversations where our goals aren't the same exactly, but we're committed to having this long-term relationship and the power of allowing that relationship to continue or to end does not lie with me at all. I know that if the community was like, we really don't want you to go, I wouldn't go. Now, on the other hand, if the Council of Elders at Mohegan tells me, we want you to go now, we might have a conversation, uh, but in the end, then I go. (laughs) So, so you know, I think it's about power. It's about long-term relationships and lasting relationship. But it's also about being very honest and very upfront about what your job is and, and how you're going to be successful at your job. If I were to take a permanent academic job, as I did a long time ago, directing the Mohegan Field School, and then I just basically said, well, by the way, I'm going to spend three months a year, two months a year doing field work, and I'm not going to be able to produce any publications. Now, the university is going to have something to say about that. Now, that's really a problem of the broader structure of how the academic world works in terms of the very corporate nature of that, but that's a long-term transformation that could happen. But But yeah, it's a tricky set of relationships that you
0: have to navigate part of this as well and and something that I'm thinking about as well as we go through the PhD process is academia and what we have deemed as good academic practice is really embedded in these to my understanding of the world outdated ways of evaluating things very western and grown from these very white male centered ideas of what is good academia and yet I am a part of that as someone in academia and how we address that, how we work with that, because just like the museum, like how we move forward using these tools that because there are good aspects. Absolutely. And adapt it and be adaptive is really interesting to me.
1: I think the place that I struggle with it, um, probably the most place where I come up with tensions is my commitment doing collaborative archaeology and all the things we've talked about. But I'm also very, very much committed to archaeological theory. Now, that's a really interesting problem that I'm writing through at the moment, which is why you can't see me, but my hair is turning white. Because I think that for me, archaeological theory is inescapable You have to absolutely engage with it. You have to be explicit with the the model of how you see the world and how you understand how archaeology works, how interpretation works. But yet that facet of archaeology is often seen as the most esoteric and ivory tower part of what we do. So where does that leave me? Well, okay, so if we get rid of that theory, What do we have? We have practice and we have method. But of course, how do we know how to do this or that? Well, common sense. Well, what's common sense come from? It comes from the default colonial enlightenment sensibilities that all of us had been handed down. So I have to go back to archaeological theory. So, okay, what am I going to do with this? Well, so how I've done this is, you know, again, we have a unique situation at Mohegan where we have a professional team of Mohegan people who do the archaeology, who care for the objects, who have their own museum, who have their own laboratories. The objects never leave the reservation boundaries. And they have time, as do I, cause that's part of my work is just to think about the world, which is a privilege that we have to recognize our privilege too. And that's one of them. I'm paid to think, that's it. So we think together now. So I found it really wonderful to be able to sit often in the woods or on a stone wall in New England with my, my Mohegan colleagues and talk about some of these issues that I find really interesting theoretically. And actually then I find very quickly, they have a lot to say about those things. So it's not that it's esoteric inherently, it's that archaeologists, and this is going to be a generalization, And I'm sorry for all those archaeologists out there. You're not good at writing. You struggle to write archaeological (laughs) theory. There's some exceptions to to this rule, but generally how archaeologists write about theory is absolutely ivory tower. And, And I'm included in this bunch. I have my moments where I'm like, wow. No one's going to read this, but I really like this 10,000 word chunk of text that I wrote. But I love it. I spent my time thinking about it. I'm going to send it off. It'll get published. But really, what good is that going to do? Now, for me personally, I don't know about you. I don't know about the listeners. But when I sit down to write anything, I never know how it's going to end. The writing process is a process through which the past and archaeology is remade again. As I come to grips with my computer screen and the ideas I'm the world that I'm in, is born again as we're working through it, as we write. I, that's how I do it. I don't know. I think there's probably writers out there that they know the conclusion, which that blows my mind because I wouldn't want to spend my time if I already knew how it ended, right? <laughs> I want to find out where we're going here. So uh, for me, I have to write through those ideas and think through those ideas, even if it's a- a 10,000 word article that I'm going to send out and maybe only 20 people are going to read it and digest it in a very meaningful way. I still take that process and it shapes how I go to the fields. It shapes what I do in the front of the museum. And so I still think that that is valuable. That one project is multiple projects, right? Might have this one top tier journal article that no one cares about. Let's be honest. It changed the way I saw things. And therefore, I'm going to carry that experience out to the woods with me. Or to when someone, when I'm talking about repatriation with someone, I'm working with a lot of artists now. I'm going to take that experience. None of those people, the artists, the person in the field, they might not read that 10,000 words. That's okay. Because we're going to take that process. Not only did I remake the past and remake the discipline, it remade who I am. I honestly believe that's true. And I'm going to take that experience, I'm going to take it with me, and I'm going to be able to explain it in the front of a museum. How am I going to explain it when I talk to a bunch of elders? I'm going to say, well, have you read Rosie Braidotti's work on post-humanism? They're going to say, uh... Who's that? Okay, that's fine, right? Because we're different, but we can talk about it in different scenarios. We can say, well, what about Stone? What do you call Stone? Well, I call them my grandmother. Well, why is that? Well, this kind of connects with what I'm talking about. You know, like, I mean, we have to be good teachers too, I think. Not that I'm saying I do teaching when I go to Mohegan. I I teach my students. I don't teach my collaborators, but Mm -hmm. we have to be good communicators or good teachers as well.
0: Yeah, I loved that. (laughs) And I actually think that right there was where we'll end the podcast, because that's actually right to the heart of what we're talking about, which is like, how do we bring these things that are in this ivory tower out of the ivory tower? And I'm looking at community archaeology. It's very much the same sort of like, how do we meet the world and the people that we want to connect with? And how does that inform practice?
1: I think it's, I think actually what you just said is really cool because what you're talking about, community archaeology is, is actually a concrete example of how academia has changed a little bit because that isn't a project 30 years ago that a PhD student would be working on necessarily, you know, even like tenure cases in places like North America, like well doing collaborative indigenous archaeology, that's very common now. Then you'll get tenure and things, but 20 years ago, would you do the same thing? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. At, At some of the bigger sort of Ivy League places, maybe not. And so I guess what I'm saying is I think inherently the tradition and history of academia is at its heart anti-collaborative. It's anti-community, it's anti-collaborative, it's pro-individual. So we're taught to think for ourselves, as long as you cite So this is the thing I'm like currently sort of writing is about what is collaboration? What does it mean? And like, how can I use my experiences doing collaborative archaeology, collaborative museum work to think about how I could redefine the academic practice? What I find constantly is that we start anti-collaboratively with the history of our disciplines. I don't want to celebrate too much, but what I'm saying is I think what you've said gives me hope, right? Because I see a PhD student doing this work. And, you know, one of the things I always say at the U of T is be better mentors for people that want to do collaborative work, because when you do community work, when you do collaborative work, when you do indigenous archaeology, most likely something's going to go wrong. So you have to keep those those backup plans in place, and we need to create a better support system to foster these new forms of archaeology. So I'm really happy to hear that you're working on that kind of stuff.
0: Thank you. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. The Public Sphere is a podcast produced by early career researchers at the Trinity Longroom Hub. For more information on this podcast episode, follow our Twitter account at Public Sphere. The second season of The Public Sphere is produced by Connor Brennan, Orla Darling, Lisa Doyle, Courtney Helen Greil, Tom Headley, Lorraine McAvoy, and Eleanor Neal. With many thanks for our jingle to Angus O'Loughlin.